0: I'm Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Suleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Enjoy the episode. So today on CardioScripts, I am so honored to be joined by Dr. Matthew Wana. He's a clinical associate professor at the University of Houston College of Pharmacy. He is also a cardiology clinical specialist at the Houston VA and director of the UHCOP Academic Fellowship. And I'm especially excited to have this guest on today because Dr. Wanat is one of my mentors, has helped me just so much throughout my career. He was actually my preceptor on my first cardiology rotation as a fourth-year pharmacy student. Um, He asked me a lot of questions then, so I'm super excited today that the tables have been turned and I get to be the one asking questions. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for that intro. You know, it's been great to follow your career and all the great stuff you guys are doing with this podcast. And um, I'm excited to be on here today and, and to talk a little bit about some of the literature.
0: And I'm really excited to have you on today because this is kind of up your alley and talking about a trial that came out at ACC 21, the adaptable trial. So we'll take a moment to talk about that and then jump into some questions with Matt. So the adaptable trial purpose was to evaluate if The aspirin dose of 325 milligrams daily would result in a lower risk of all-cause death hospitalization for myocardial infarction, or MI, or hospitalization for stroke among patients with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCBD. They were comparing the 325 dose to the 81 milligram daily dose. There's been some some questions in the past in terms of what aspirin dose we should be using long-term for these patients, and even some literature looking at short-term as well, which we'll delve into a little bit with Matt. And this was an open-label, multi-center, randomized controlled trial, and it was the first clinical trial to use something called the PCR-NET um, to conduct comparative effectiveness research with a focus on pragmatic clinical trials. So really, this was a, a real-world study that was being conducted. Patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio to aspirin 81 milligrams or 325 milligrams daily, and these patients purchased the assigned dose over-the-counter, and they were given uh, $25 in compensation. And follow-up, uh, and this was pre-COVID, was conducted via patient portal or via phone if the patient didn't have internet access. Patients were included if they had a prior myocardial infarction, prior coronary revascularization procedure, so this could be PCI or cabbage, prior coronary angiography, demonstrating 75% or more stenosis of at least one epicardial coronary artery, history of chronic ischemic heart disease, coronary artery disease, or ASCBD. Patients were excluded if they had an aspirin allergy, history of GI bleed within 12 months, bleeding disorder that precluded aspirin use, current or planned use of an oral anticoagulant or ticagrelor, or female patients who were pregnant or nursing. The primary effectiveness outcome was looking at a time to first occurrence of any event in the composite of death from any cause, hospitalization for MI, or hospitalization for stroke. And the primary safety outcome was looking at hospitalization for major bleeding with an associated blood product transfusion. For the results, there were about 15,000 patients who underwent randomization, about 7,500 in the 81 milligram and 325 milligram group. About 87.4% completed the trial encounters via the patient portal and about 13% via the call center. The median duration of follow-up was about 26 months About 80% of patients completed at least 51% or more of their follow-up encounters through either the patient portal or the call center. With regards to baseline characteristics, the mean age was about 67 years, about 70% were male, 80% white, 35% with the previous MI, and about 53% with previous coronary revascularization roughly 83% had hypertension, 86% dyslipidemia, 8% AFib, 23% peripheral artery disease. About 6% had a previous clinically significant GI bleed. 1.5% had a previous intracranial hemorrhage. About 9% of patients were current smokers. And so 90% of patients who were included were taking aspirin prior to the trial. And of those 85% were taking 81 milligrams, 2% were taking a 162 milligram dose. About 12% were taking a 325 milligram dose. About 21% of patients included were on clopidogrel, 1.5% on prasugrel, and less than 0.5% were on some other antiplatelet medications such as teclopidine or cilostazole. So for the primary outcome, um, it occurred in 7.28% at the median follow-up time in the 81 milligram group and 7.51% of those in the 325 milligram group came out to a hazard ratio of 1.02, 95% confidence interval of 0.91 to 1.14. When they looked at some of the components of the primary outcome, so all-cause death, uh, there was no difference found between the two groups. Similarly, for uh, hospitalization for major bleeding, didn't find a difference between the two groups, occurred in 0.63% and 0.6% in the 81 milligram and 325 milligram groups, respectively, with a hazard ratio of one18 95% confidence interval of 0.79 to 1.77. Aspirin was discontinued in 7% and about 11% of those in the 81 and 325 milligram groups respectively. And dose switching was reported to have occurred in 7.1% of those in the 81 milligram group and about 41.6% of patients switched from the 325 milligram group to the 81 milligram group. The median number of days of exposure to the assigned aspirin dose was 650 days in the 81 milligram group and 434 days in the 325 milligram group. And so that is the adaptable trial. And I think Matt, even before getting your overall thoughts about the trial, can we take some time to talk about your thoughts just prior to this coming out about, you know, aspirin 81 versus 325 milligrams out in practice?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, maybe it's based on when I came into practice, but I'm, I'm definitely on team 81 milligrams for aspirin. And I think that really has been the general shift over the last 10 years or so. Um, studies conducted in the early 2010s, we saw much higher rates of, of high dose aspirin being used for secondary prevention, mainly in the United States and, and North America, compared to Europe and other sites worldwide. But that's really shifted over the years um, over those last 10 years now to, to 81 milligrams being the predominant dose. And, and I think that makes sense. We don't really have any robust, consistent data showing us that high-dose aspirin gives you a net clinical benefit for secondary prevention. Um, you know, some of the trials that they talked about in the background section all really showed this, um, you know, trials like the Translate ACS trial, the current OASIS trial, which looked at, you know, people on dual antiplatelet therapy after a major event and found that the low dose aspirin um, was associated with similar outcomes and and typically less bleeding. Um, So it's important to point out those studies did differ um, in their time points, concurrent medications compared to um, the adaptable trial. You know, another thing when we're looking at low versus high dose aspirin is that I'm using a lot more in my practice of uh, Ticagrelor for dual antiplatelet therapy. So that also really precludes us for using high dose aspirin in those patients. Um, And then, when you look at the guidelines, the guidelines haven't really been consistent throughout. You know, the European guidelines do um, recommend 81 milligrams, but we have then seen a shift in our our AHA ACC guidelines. You know, specifically if you look at that focused update on dual antiplatelet therapy, um, that now gives a class one recommendation specifically for low dose aspirin and those on dual antiplatelet therapy. So, really coming into this trial before reading it, from my perspective, I really needed to see robust outcomes from adaptable, showing a benefit with the 325 milligram dose to consider changing how I practice in my patients.
0: So I think that's a good lead into um, really asking what your overall thoughts were about the adaptable trial.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, after reading the trial, I my thoughts overall were really twofold. You know, we did get some data um, looking at low versus high dose aspirin for secondary prevention, but I have to admit overall, with the amount of limitations in the study and you know the lack of a, a pretty intense analysis, um, I thought maybe the more important takeaway from this study was this new testing of this pragmatic study design, which I assume we'll talk a little bit more about later today. Um, you know, looking overall at the study, we really did see similar outcomes that we've seen in, in those previous studies that we talked about. Low dose aspirin provided you know similar outcomes compared to high dose. Um, with similar bleeding rates. So there was no benefit from using a high-dose aspirin as, you know, looking at cardiovascular events and looking at major bleeding events. It's important to point out that compared to a lot of those previous studies, which looked at aspirin and antiplatelet therapy right after a cardiovascular event, that this study followed people that were likely, you know, potentially several years out from their ACS event, if they even had an ACS event. I think about a third of the patients had ACS Um, about half had undergone revascularization, but about 50% of the patients met inclusion criteria with a diagnosis of ischemic heart disease um, or atherosclerotic disease. So really when looking at the patient population compared to previous studies, you can make an argument that this cohort was less sick overall um, and not coming out of an acute event right away. Um, there were, you know, when looking at the, the actual study data itself, there are definitely some major limitations that I think impact our, our ability to, to analyze the results. Um, you know, as a pharmacist, one of the first things I like to look at are baseline characteristics, you know, not only to make sure the two cohorts are similar, but I like to look at medications and look at the impact that medications are having patients um, on patients, you know, which is important from a pharmacist perspective. You know, and they really didn't talk much. And even if you look at the the supplementary appendix, there wasn't great data on other meds that patients were on that might um, have impacted results. So other meds that we know maybe improve mortality, stuff like statins. You know, there's a decent amount of people with heart failure. So what percent of patients in both groups were on guideline-directed medical therapy, other medications that might increase bleeding, how they treated atrial fibrillation. So there's a lot of potential confounders, I thought, that weren't analyzed that could have really impacted the outcomes when looking at cardiovascular outcomes or bleeding. Um, and then an, another big limitation I thought was the, the high rates of switching over in the study. So Liz, as you pointed out, over, over 40% of patients in the high dose group switched over to the low dose, You know, so pretty close to half of all patients. Um, also had a, a higher rate of discontinuation in the high dose group and a lot less days of exposure to the assigned study dose in the high dose group. So in a way, the study at the end, when you're talking about a a 40% changeover, the study almost looked at 81 milligrams essentially in both groups. Um, So I thought, you know, those were two big limitations that really impact our ability to accurately analyze this low dose versus high dose um, in this study.
0: The other consideration or something else is just during the time um, that the study was being conducted to even though these were secondary prevention patients, there were primary prevention guidelines that came out, some of the other primary prevention trials that came out in 2018, like a a and all of those trials too. There was question of, you know, if this other data was coming out about aspirin, could this potentially have impacted um, the patients in terms of switching from 325 to 81? Again, these were secondary prevention patients, but there was question if some of this primary prevention literature could have impacted that.
1: Yeah, you know, and during the study, you're, you're exactly right. During the study, um, th- while this study was being conducted, we had a lot of new data that came out. We also had that 2016 focus update on DAPT. So there was probably a, a big impact on providers at that point seeing patients, seeing their patients on 325 and reducing that dose down to 81. I know, you know, as pharmacists in, in our practice over in the, the ICU at the VA, um, we're like hawks when we see three twenty five. you know what's what's the reason they're on three twenty five? Why do they need to be on three twenty five? Let's change them down to eighty one. So you know the the switching over was definitely a major limitation. You know and and as I was reading the study, I wondered, you know when you see that high rate of switching over, I wonder if they would have modified the protocol to have medications blinded instead of being open label. So if they blinded it to the patients and the study team, how that would have impacted the switching over. You know they they talked about in the protocol patients were given their assignment so they're given their dose they were given twenty five dollar reimbursement and then they went to the pharmacy and picked it up as an over the counter medication so I bet for a similar cost they could have blinded the medication and just paid for the med and the postage and shipped it out to the patient and basically kept them blinded in the study and I think maybe by doing that you would have had less people switching over um, which might have give you given you more generalizability and ability to interpret these results. So I wonder if that's something that maybe, you know, future pragmatic studies like this might consider doing it that way.
0: So Matt, I think that's a great segue into my next question, which is asking um, really what your thoughts were about this pragmatic study design. So there was a lot there to kind of, kind of go through with the adapters or the patient partners that they had. Everything was virtual, patient follow-up rate. Can you delve more into that?
1: Yeah, I love it. And I think that was was really, the, this this new study design was really the big takeaway from this study for me. You know, this is really the first run of a, a large, pragmatic, real-life virtual trial in the U.S. that, you know, hopefully will provide a lot of good learning points and opportunities for, you know, how we run future studies. And if you think about it, it's almost poetic to have this study published as we, we near the end of, you know, hopefully the COVID pandemic Uh, with the crazy part that this was started and put into place well before we had the pandemic. Just think about how perfectly a study like this fits um, into a mid-2020 COVID pandemic um, as far as running it and enrolling patients, limitations with funding, a lot of that kind of stuff. So it was pretty cool to see the opportunities of, of using big data and EMR data with insurance data and then having patients and clinicians also incorporate data in Um, I think it's a great example of of collaboration in healthcare and we need more trials like this. From the patient's perspective, I think these pragmatic trials are a huge win. It was really nice to see this concept of patient partners involved in the study design, Um, these nine or so um, patients that were involved from basically start to finish to give a different perspective um, that we don't commonly have in our clinical trials. You know, patients were able to do everything electronically or by phone, really saving them time, saving them money. If you think about it, most of us would rather text or message than have a phone call. So really the option to complete via an internet portal I thought was awesome. And as expected, almost 90% of people chose this route for the study. Um, The investigators still had a safety net for people that didn't fill out the internet portal. They were able to call them and get information via phone interviews, so that worked well. Personally, I've never participated in a clinical trial, but if I did, I would love a protocol like this because I really, you know, as a participant, I think there's really minimal burden placed on me. Something I did notice that, you know, that jumped out to me as a limitation was the study did really require a large amount of people to be screened and invited for enrollment. So they screened and invited over 450,000 people that were eligible. And then only it said about 30,000 entered their code in the the portal and 15,000 end up being randomized. So if you think about it, that's a little over 3% of patients that were eligible that were enrolled. So, you know, 400,000 patients that were eligible and and never took the next step. So authors didn't really talk about enrollment, but I expect future studies to look at methods and barriers to increasing enrollment. So you don't have to screen and approach, you know, so many patients.
0: I think one consideration is just when we're going about using internet access to, you know, incorporate patients into studies is making sure we don't miss patients who maybe don't have internet access. Uh, healthcare disparities um, or disparities in in general are something to to continue to keep in mind, making sure that we're doing a good job representing the patients that we're taking care of. Um, and so that's just Something to, to consider. Maybe not everybody has internet access, um, and maybe they aren't around when you know the phone call comes through from the study investigators.
1: No, it's a, that's a that's a great point. You know, we sometimes take it for granted having you know good internet access, phone access, and you know if these roles are if these studies are going to become the new normal, you know, making sure we're not worsening healthcare disparities by you know not including people that don't have access to. To this type of follow-up that you know a lot of americans do
0: so matt i think we've had a lot of great discussion about the the trial as well as like just the design of it um but kind of wrapping things up any final thoughts any takeaways you want our listeners to walk away with
1: yeah so i mean i guess looking at the data that we have i don't think much has changed for the role of aspirin 325 I'd, I'd say it's the role still very limited there's just not good data there for secondary prevention um, although it had flaws in the study design, um, adaptable didn't really give us any further data, You know, especially from my perspective to change practice and, and use high dose over 81 milligrams per aspirin. Um, I think the, the big winner and the big take home point from the study was this new study design. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what we learn from this design and, and how future studies are crafted and, and able to incorporate it with a patient, patient-centered approach um, I think it's really gonna be positive for patients and hopefully will result in more patients choosing to participate in trials and and us as clinicians getting stronger, more robust data um, to analyze and, and use to take care of our patients.
0: Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking time to be on Cardioscripts. Um, we really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Good luck with the podcast.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Cardioscripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.